And welcome again to American Dreamtime, the Robert Barham Show. I'm Robert Barham, and today is a day filled with art, hopefully, for us. Well, I know it is. And for you, the listener, uh, my good friend uh, Brian Bernhardt is here to talk with us about the business of art. Brian, welcome. Hello. Thanks for uh, inviting me on your show. <laughs> How are you doing this weekend, my friend? Ah, uh, so so far so good. Still alive. Um, still uh, making art as much as I can. Yeah. Tell, um, tell me, and not only me, but our listeners, a little bit about yourself, if you would, real quickly. So uh, I am an artist and entrepreneur that I sort of call being an entrepreneur. So I uh, wear both hats of making the art and also the hat of selling the art and and creating a sustainable business with said art, which is uh, more often than not a uh, uh, relatively difficult uh, balance to make because there are certain things that an artist wants to make that are not necessarily marketable, but then there are certain things that a business has to achieve in order to stick around. So I've been, that, that, that in a nutshell is, uh, encompasses my existence over the last few years. Uh, previous to that, uh, I have experience, uh, 20 years experience in producing and editing TV um, primarily about arts and culture programming uh, in New York City. And uh, I've toured uh, as a musician in some bands over the years um, and done all kinds of crazy stuff. To interrupt you for a second, you are an award-winning um, producer, right? Correct, yeah. Uh, back, back in, uh, it's been, a, been a, a little while, but uh, for my stretch of years where I was producing and editing TV in New York City, I uh, was throughout the years nominated for five Emmys, uh, ended up winning one Emmy, which is hanging around in my studio here. And uh, then I ended up winning two tellies as well, which is pretty cool. And, and then I uh, decided to uh, rocket off to the West Coast and build my career as an independent artist and build a brand. Nice. So now, speaking of brands, Embrace the Weird mm -hmm. is your brand. Correct. Embrace the Weird is my brand. I, I had spent so many years <clears throat> creating uh, things for other people, using the talents that I had learned over the years to create other people's dreams and visions, uh, whether it's the TV station that I was working for or uh, clients along the way. Uh, and I spent so many years doing that that I was like, okay, it's time to figure out what, what is the most true thing that I can make? What is the, what kind of company could I build that is the most representational of what I do? And over the years, uh, just organically, ever since I was a young kid, people have called me a weirdo for whatever reasons. Um, most, most reasons are because I don't necessarily follow the crowd. I don't, I never did everything everybody else did. I always dressed my own way. I grew up in a very conservative town in Southern Virginia where people just, you know, I wore red boots and clown pants to high school. And people were like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> what, town, so, what town in Southern Virginia? Uh, Blackwater, Virginia is where I uh, largely grew up. Black? Um, what, now, what is it near? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> it's, it's about... 
uh, a 10 minute drive to uh, uh, North Carolina from where I'm at. Uh, would often drive there to get uh, barbecue. Uh, <laughs> and uh, outside of that, it's just a whole lot of cornfields and cows. So it's 10 um, from, the, from the state line? It's 10 minutes. It was 10 minutes from my house to the North Carolina border where there was a convenience store that sold really great barbecue. Um, but that was the closest uh, store to where I lived. That literally took me a hour and a half long bus ride for me to get from my house to my high school uh, when I was riding the school bus. And it was still about an hour drive by car, hour to 45 minutes by car to get from my house to my high school from where I lived. Wow. So I was closer are... north to the other state in my where I lived than I was to my own high school. <laughs> so you, there you are, you're in Southern Virginia and you are the weird kid Right, and you're wearing red, red boots and clown pants to school. No, they were straight at Red Doc Martens, man. No cowboy boots for me. Oh, Red but Doc Martens, okay. Had I been wearing cowboy boots, I would have been in the in crowd because that's what was the fashion <laughs> statement there. Instead, you're wearing mosh pit shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, clown pants and trench coats. I had almost the same hair. I had, my hair was longer. It was down, down to my uh, gluteus maximus. And uh, it was also dyed in rainbow colors, which is kind of what it is. It's a little faded these days because uh, it's more pandemic style right now. But my hair is uh, kind of went through the like in high school, it was rainbow colored. And then I entered the workforce and began working for various TV stations. And I toned it down and got a haircut and did all that stuff. And then I went through that period and went to grad school and like and ended up moving. And then I opened up a, my own uh, business that I called Embrace the Weird. And I'm like, I, I work for myself for a company called Embrace the Weird. I feel entitled to put more color back into my hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you ever got made fun of for your haircut, I, I sympathize and I empathize with you because uh, I remember when I... Uh, got my first pair of Doc Martens. I was probably into a similar kind of music that you were at that time, punk rock <laughs> or alternative, progressive, all of that, all that really fun music. And I went promptly out not long after getting my Doc Martens and my, uh, my skateboard from Pau Peralta and then uh, got my head shaved with a mohawk. And I remember being in Southern Virginia, going to school, <laughs> with uh, I didn't have any clown pants but uh, <laughs> I do remember uh, quite well being uh, walking down Main Street of the college town and these guys drove by in a pickup truck they were townies and there were two guys in the front and two guys in the payload bay and um, they drove by me and when they drove past I heard one of them yell to some to the other guys hey boys let's go get him shoot him and mount his head Oh, good Lord. So I started running, <laughs> and I ran as fast as I could. And then I finally got tired of running, and I said, okay, that's enough. I'm not running anymore. And these guys caught up with me, and they cornered me, and they were about to let me have it. And then uh, miraculously, uh, like out of some movie, this friend of mine, this uh, African-American guy who eventually ended up becoming a – he was a Trinidad native, ended up becoming an attorney uh, – walked up a set of stairs 
saw me, sized up the situation in about two seconds flat, looked at this guy. This guy was built like the guy from the Green Mile. And uh, <laughs> the four guys, and he said in this really beautiful Trinidadian accent, does there seem to be a problem here, fellas? And uh, all of them turned away and headed out of there. So he saved Nice. Me. Yeah. So yes. I, I get the weird. I've, I got that plenty of times growing up in life. So here you are now. You're an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur with the Embrace the Weird, and you truly have embraced it. What's a, There are some negative connotations about being weird. Tell me, well, about, like, how, how deeply have you embraced the definition? Well, uh, you know, what, what's interesting is uh, as a kid, people use the word weird in a derogatory sense. And like, you know, when we're, we're called weird as kids, uh, that generally was, you know, something bad, something, ugh. um, and, and over the years I, I came to learn that 99% of the time people say that it's because of ignorance. It's because they don't really understand something that is not exactly the same as what they're familiar with. And, if you actually take the time to look up the dictionary definition of the word weird, it has a much broader meaning than what we remember. There is a form of the word weird, which is an adjective, which is something that is unusual. Uh, But then there's the noun form of the word weird, which means a person's destiny. And really interesting. And, and, and most people, it's not used that way in, in our current colloquialisms and in our current language, but in older English, the term weird was described as a person's destiny. So for me to embrace the weird genuinely means to embrace my destiny. And, oh. and if this, if my destiny is a path that is not parallel or exactly the same as yours, I think that's a good thing. And I think of, I think that if more human beings realized that we're all just a bunch of weirdos then we'll get along a lot better because my tactic with bullies sure I I had a few bullies in school but in many cases I um, was friendly with almost like when people would call me weird and just just like today like the way I deal with internet trolls you know or internet trolls are essentially our modern bullies right um, and, and I, I absolutely love internet trolls when they start going at me. Like I have genuinely, in 99% of every internet troll that I've come across has resulted in them becoming a fan of what I'm doing, <laughs> huh. um, which I find like, what happens is people have a facade, this sort of sock puppeted mask that they put on that gives them anonymity to go after people. And high school bullies don't. High school bullies had like they, they had to deal with the ownness of being a bully in most cases. But the Internet troll has become per- pervasive because of the anonymity of it. Um, but when you address a person like a human being, who has, and this works in real life too, like outside the internet, when bullies are being bullies, but yet you go back at them with incredible amounts of respect. 
and you treat them better than you would be treating yourself. Like with, with, without ever stooping to, to the level that they want to bring you down to. And you make them feel good about themselves. 99% of the time they get really confused as to why you're not reflecting the same negativity back to them. Yeah. You're not playing their game. And, and, and also by not getting upset at what they're doing, you know, by not being triggered, like, you know, in a real world, if a bully is sitting there like punching me or hurting somebody, it takes it to the next level. So then you have to physically react to said instance. But oftentimes like that itself doesn't have to escalate as bad as it, as it, you know, tends to like uh, when you do something that a bully doesn't expect, then it throws the whole game off. You know, I remember um, in, in walking down the hallway in high school, holding some school books and uh, it was like a kind of a large stack. And I walked by this bull, like typical cliche bully who was maybe about two feet taller than I was. And like, we just, I was just casually walking by and he knocks my book stack and uh, the top two books fall off and like fall onto the floor and they turn around, they start laughing. And I just kind of grabbed the rest of my books and I inflated myself like 10,000 times my size, just like uh, to a point where he didn't expect me to puff myself up as big as I did. Uh-huh. And, and the contrast between this little dude and this big guy, he totally threw off what he was expecting to happen. So by me puffing myself up and like, you know, lifting myself up to his level, you know, just psychologically, um, he totally, it totally derailed his game. And he was like, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, it was very, it was a very surreal moment. Um, it was definitely taking a risk on my, on my part because it could have gone completely sideways. Um, fortunately it didn't. And, and he never did anything like that again. <laughs> it didn't escalate. It like, it didn't turn into a brawl, but this, where, where he could have just, you know, started sucker punching me or something like that in the cliche way. I totally threw off his expectations. And I think oftentimes uh, humor can do that. You know, you know, like it completely, if you, if if, let's say you have a bully who's like super angry at the world because, you know, whatever his parents are kicking his ass or something like that. And so he's ready to lash out and he go and he's going at you and you, and you make him laugh. It's really like hard to, continue hating somebody that you don't really hate if they just made you laugh <laughs> no i i agree that was uh, for me when i was in school i was uh i was 98 pounds my sophomore year yeah i was uh, someone who got uh, messed with periodically and i used uh humor often to self-effacing humor often to to deal with the situation and then I grew up and became a professional stand-up comedian for many years. And I agree with you when you're dealing with a, a troll, which in a comedy club, that's a heckler. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that's um, one of the things that's unexpected by them is to love them. Yeah. When you love up on them, and uh, oftentimes they just don't know what to do. They haven't had that kind of like non-judgmental um, uh, appreciation of them and what they're there, and often they just muck in with the rest of the group afterwards. You so, know, I, I've seen some amazing, like I've seen comedians get heckled where it goes completely sideways and the comedian, you know, the performer is not prepared to deal with the heckler or whatever built up in their day. And they just explode and the whole room becomes awkward and, and the comedian loses the room. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's an awful sensation, you know, for everyone involved. It's like, what happens now? And I've even seen comedians like storm off the stage. Right. And you're like, ah, but I, I've seen masterful comedians who take that heckler and completely shit like control the situation right you know like i like i think uh mark Marin is an example of a comedian who i've seen like handle like like crazy hecklers like where there's like like a drunk person like just totally derailing the show and he takes the stool and literally sits it in front of that person. And like, that becomes, like he just like peers into their soul and like, he makes a moment about them that like, that is so revealing that their whole tone shifts. And then he goes back into a show and you're like, Holy shit, what just happened? You know? And, and to his credit, he's got this, you know, now decade long of experience of doing these really intense, insightful interviews with people where he is almost like peering into your soul to some degree. Um, but like when he does that live on the stage to a heckler and it's, and it's genuinely funny for like a funny moment that is revealed in this awkward cesspool of, you know, what could go completely sideways it's it's pretty incredible when you see a comedian handle it in that way and 99 percent of the time if somebody captures that moment on video right because you see all these moments where comedians like are getting heckled and then they say something then it goes viral for all the wrong reasons and people hate the comedian for whatever it is they they said but like when it when it doesn't go sideways it either doesn't go viral or it like it goes viral for the right reasons. Like people are like, Oh my God, did you see how amazingly this dude handled this heckler? You know, it was, it was brilliant. And like it created this moment. So I've seen, I've seen that like both sides of that. And it's, it's a pretty fascinating, like the human psyche is definitely weird. <laughs> <laughs> Bring us back to our subject. And now you're, you're, by the way, I agree with you. Mark Marin is a, is a wonderful comic, wonderful comedian. I, Actually, um, when I was doing a show on Comedy Central called Two Drink Minimum, he was one of the guys on the episode that I shot. It was him and Dave Attell. Nice. At that time, I'd not heard of him or Dave Attell. And right. when I watched those two guys perform. I thought, man, who are these guys? These guys are amazing. These are fantastic yeah. comedians. Yeah, and that was before Marin had his cathartic moments in his own psyche. That was when he was still the grumpy person that loved to hate everyone. Yeah, right. <laughs> Brian, let me ask you, you are, you are an entrepreneur. Um, yes. What are some of the challenges in your business that you have to deal with? Besides, oh. uh, I mean, I, I get the sense of you're talking about trolls, but 
what's uh, what's the challenge of the difference of business and art? Uh, well, I, th I think the number one challenge originally, uh, which is something I long since have gotten over, is is fear. Which I think fear is the the limiting factor for most creativity. That's the thing that derails it and like fear of failure, uh, fear, uh, fear of not being accepted or people not liking something. Um, and once you get over that, um, the next challenge for me is, is the, the business side of stuff, right? Like the, the, the paperwork stuff, the, the filing the right things and, and filling out the right forms. And, and I, I love conceiving of like, the big picture scenario. Like I love coming up with ideas that connect with people. And I love making very stupidly detailed artwork that is almost uh, uh, a meditation for me when I'm making the artwork. But sitting down to fill out all the right forms and get this form and this permit and do this and figure that out. and and that, that, that for me is like the bane to my existence, you know, like that, like <laughs> I, like I, I can stay up a, three weeks in a row without sleep working on a piece of art or coming up with some product that people might be jazzed about or like innovating on new ideas. But as soon as I start filling out forms and documents and, and all this incredibly dry stuff that is what entails like running the business that shit just puts me right to sleep <laughs> like almost immediately it's like i got i got I, I can put in like an hour or two of work onto the thing and it's like i gotta put it to the side you know whereas when i'm working on a piece of artwork i'm like ah! you're totally you know? passionate <laughs> like, and up when just, you're working on your art yeah just like making any art you know like uh, keeps me much more alert and attuned to what, like innovating on ideas uh, keeps me going, you know, whereas just navigating my way through, because I also went to art school. I didn't go to business school. So figuring all that stuff out has just been, um, you know, essentially uh, me, the blind, leading myself also the blind because I don't have any, um, you know, um, mentors in that way who have had the time to just sit with me and and help me figure things out. So it has definitely been uh, figuring out and problem solving and like and oftentimes you know you have an idea for a business you start doing that thing it connects people people start spending money on the thing and then you're like oh I I, I was supposed to have a permit for that uh, like I did you know like there's so many different things that you have to hurdles that you have to get by in order to legally sell the thing that you're making. Right. Um, like you just think like when you're, when you're starting out that like, Oh, I'm making a thing and people want to buy that thing. That's all. Awesome. Like I've done it. Like, this is what I need to do. But then you, you realize that there's so many different weird hurdles depending upon what state you're in and, and this, and that, and, you know, and this person wants a piece of that, and this person wants a piece of that, and you're like, ah, like, I just want to make a thing and sell it to people, but, <laughs> you know, like, the business part of things, and that's also where I think the art and the business conflict a little bit, is there's a whole science to the business thing, there's this whole political aspect of business 
that is almost oil and water with the creative mind. And uh, it takes a lot to push through that. Um, that being said, you know, sometimes things click on the internet and go crazy viral and people build successful careers out of that. And sometimes, most times, we don't hear about the stuff that, that is not, you know, it's like I haven't created anything in my career that has gone insanely viral. I've had little moments of little virality within some of the content that I've put out in the world. Um, but I've largely been able to make a career and have a sustainable business based on small output, based on connecting with people and people like finding enough of an audience that is interested in what I'm doing to continue coming back to collect the things that I keep making and, and introducing into their lives. And I think that that is, I, that should be primarily a goal for any artist that wants to, uh, to do art is to create something that is sustainable first. And then if things go viral, that's just icing on the cake. You know, like if you go, if you blow up, if you, if you get like Banksy popularity with something as an artist, that's amazing. And then you go buy your house and your boats. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think figuring out a way to just keep doing the thing you do, because oftentimes people have to give up doing the thing they do so they can do a thing that will help them pay rent. Um, and then that they get caught up in the thing that's pay, helping them pay rent and they, they lose the thing that they wanted to do, which is easy to fall into. That's uh, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to for us to uh, have an interview and conversation today is that, you know, if we go back for a moment, you are you went back to childhood where you were you've been creative and artistic since very, very early on. And then and you told me that you embrace the weird, which is the the distinct you, the real you, the unique you, the you that really wanted to just um, make a living and be an artist mm -hmm. and do what you want to do. And so I wonder, I mean, it sounds a bit like who you are. That's your that was your calling to be an artist who creates. Is there some truth to that? Do you agree? Um I, I think, I think largely the, there is a certain amount of like fate to things and destiny to things, you know, embrace the weird is a person's destiny. So there's a certain amount of that. Um, I, I have always desired to want to experience and do as much as I possibly can throughout my entire life. And I have definitely not been the type of person who likes to, or has, has identified with a singular thing. Even when I was in art school, I had painting professors that say, if you ever want to make it as a, as a real painter in the world, then you have to give up any other thing that you're doing and just paint. Uh -huh. And uh, musicians, like if you ever want to make it as a musician in the world, you have to give up everything else you're doing and just make music. And while there is some merit to that, I still have never, I, I've always wanted to do everything, you know, like uh, I still write books and I still make music and I still, you know, like I was in a touring band for years. So we got, to, got I got to do music stuff. Um, and we were signed to a, a record label and we did 
that thing and it was it was awesome um i produced movies and tv and i made my own tv series and stuff people said i couldn't do it so i was like i i sure as hell why can't i do it so over the years i've i've what i've figured out for myself and this doesn't always work for everyone is i feel that creative energy comes from the same place and as long as you're serving that creative energy and as long like it doesn't matter what medium you're doing you're playing like you can you can make a podcast as your art form and that is where your creative energy is going to or you can make a tv show or you can make a cookbook you know like but it's all coming from that same seed of creative energy and as long as you're serving the ideas and what i what i really enjoy is is the ideas is coming up with ideas no matter what the medium is whether it's drawing painting film video writing illustrating uh you know whatever it is i come up with an idea and then i figure out what it takes to make that idea you know do i have to learn this instrument in order to make this idea then i learn that instrument you know do i have to figure out this software in order to achieve the concept or the idea that i that i have then i learn that software you know like it's just whatever the idea is i i figure out what it takes to serve that idea and you know like i had the idea where i want to make a business selling original designs with my artwork i don't at this point in my life i don't sew so i had to figure out how, how to do that like uh the the most scalable way was to connect with businesses that do cut and sew on demand with designs and i and i partnered with a bunch of these companies to put my original designs on and i have a professional that prints my stuff on garments that get cut and sewed and and i don't have to do that stuff i figured out a way around it although now that i've been doing it for years i'm starting to get more of an interest in oh maybe i should go and buy a sewing machine you know maybe maybe i should start like tailoring some you know some some original pieces like it's kind of like i'm starting to see it as more of a creative outlet now uh than just making the images that go on the things yeah sounds like that that sounds like more fun well if i hear what you're saying you're you're and this is another reason why 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 we're talking today is that if anyone who has paid attention to the news knows that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 million people in the United States have applied for unemployment recently. There have been a lot of jobs that have been lost. And while many of those people um, are looking for work and will probably end up going back to work for a company at some point, I do know that every one of them has a dream, at least one dream. And within that, I know that many of them probably have a dream a bit like yours, which is they have a gift that they'd like to express, some creative gift that they would like to find an outlet that that gift can profit. They can profit with that gift. And uh, if that means creating a small business, um, that's really, then that's what they would like to do. And so I'm hoping that you, in talking to you that you can share uh, and we'll continue to share some insights and some inspiration for those people who tune in and are interested in that kind of thing, looking to that. 
So uh, I'm glad you're here today. Thank you. It's, I mean, it is straight up, no joke, the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire career. Like, like it's, it's much easier to uh, work for someone else who has the idea, who says, can you just make this thing? Um, that is a much easier thing. And then, and then that person's paying you to make a thing. And then you're taking time out of your day because like, oh, they're paying me like, you know, this much to work from nine to five. And then the rest of the time I can just do whatever I want. And there's no, no, no stress. And I just make my, I just make this thing for them. They pay me money and that, that's my life. And I think, I think that is fine. Uh, for people that are satisfied with that, sure. Um, I I think that's great. I did that for many years, but I also I always felt like I was uh, not necessarily being honest with the creative vision that I had with things. Everything was there was a lot of compromises being made, and I wanted to see what that would be like without the compromises. And uh, it's taken, you know years to uh, start breaking even um especially when i i didn't start from a place where i had a giant nest egg of money to invest in things i started from a place um after uh i had already moved and spent years working on an independent project that didn't quite work out the way i wanted it to so it's like i spent all my money on that and i'm like how do i you know figure out how to make an existence out of what i'm doing right now you know so so it's like I, I started building this business and it started uh, connecting with people and, and, and working in that way. But it's not like it's gangbusters. It's not like I made this thing and I'm, I have a windfall of cash coming my way. It's like every connection I make, every transaction that I make, every new collective that I have is, is work. It's, it's all very labor intensive, even when, uh, so I have a gallery in San Pedro that is sort of in limbo during the pandemic. I have found that being in that gallery space and having human beings coming into my, my gallery space is the best way that I've had to connect with people who then genuinely become collectors. The internet is an interesting place because like you can throw out all kinds of stuff and sometimes you get people that buy stuff on the internet, but like you have to really pump it out. You have to really get the sausage going and you have to just throw everything impossible and everything out onto the internet. And as if you, if you cast a wide enough net, you'll start getting returned back. But that net becomes so watered down because you're just spreading it everywhere you possibly can. And most, and oftentimes it's like, that's spreading with like, you're making so much content that people can't avoid it. And that, but is that content exactly the content that you want? I don't know. It is much more localized if you're doing it in a small gallery with human beings physically walking into your space. And for me, that is where I think the energy lies. It's the difference between, I think, a, like a, a live stage theater performer and a soap opera performer. You know? Yeah, but what there, I mean, there are so many galleries out there already. Why would you want to do, say, for example, your own gallery as opposed to going to these other galleries? 
I mean, well, the the art gallery scene is definitely due for some disruption. I think it has been disrupted from what it might have once been. It's a very strange place to be now. Um, I think, and this could just be my my own fantasy land. Do I? What is it? What's your perception of what it's like now? Well, in my in my fantasy land, I believe that the galleries of your the the seventies and eighties fine art gallery scene. I believe that there. The ideal version of a gallery is there are these uh, curators who are very knowledgeable about art. They curate galleries and they, they, they actively go out into the art community to meet artists and see what people are doing. And then they see an artist that they feel they have a collector for because they have, they have this big Rolodex of collect people that are really interested in art. So they start nurturing that artist and then they do a show with them. And, and I, I think that at some point there was uh, a certain value placed on art that was cultural, like people really got it and people were into it. And I think throughout, at some point towards the end of the 80s and the early 90s, that somehow started consuming itself and it became too important and people started rejecting it like it came it became too elitist and and that world started consuming itself and people weren't nurturing artists anymore people were just sort of taking advantage of artists who didn't know any better and that whole world started consuming itself and then it kind of splintered and today's gallery scene is very much a a pay-to-play situation where most gallerists most most art galleries are not necessarily curators of artwork they are pay to play so whoever can afford to pay enough money to become part of a gallery to show in their exhibitions are the people who are then showing in those galleries so for new artists to get that exposure it's almost impossible it's like most of most of the artists that are out there selling their work these days are second career artists somebody who made it as a successful lawyer and is retired and now wants to paint can afford the cost of paying to put their work in a gallery. Whereas a new artist who is just an artist who is like never had a career as a doctor and doesn't have a giant bank account to afford to pay like huge amounts of rent is never going to be able to get into those galleries. And so there are very, very few galleries that are still run on, the concept where a curator thinks that there is potential to actually sell this artwork and the, the gallery is making money off of actual art sales. Most galleries today make money off of the, the, the person paying them rent to show their artwork there and that's how they exist. And I think it became that way because the real estate market is out of control and most uh, and galleries are just having a hard time sustaining themselves. So I got burnt out of that scene, that weird sort of consuming itself, people take exploiting other people's scenes. So I was like, what if I just, you know, taking a cue off of some of uh, some of the other artists that I've seen out there, like what happens if I just open up my own business, my own gallery, then I control the sales. Like I'm not, if I don't expect somebody else to sell my artwork, 
then I can sell it. Cause I certainly can talk about my artwork better than anybody else that I've met so far. Um, so people physically coming into my gallery space where I get to genuinely have a conversation with them are more likely to become collectors in my experience than any other situation that I've ever created or represented my artwork in. Like, and I, I, that has created for me a community with, where which people come back to check on like, hey, what's the new stuff you've made? Can I check out your latest paintings? And I show them and they're like, oh, that's awesome. I'll buy that one, you know? So I've been able to create actual collectors, which definitely fuels the energy to keep moving forward, right? I think what happens online is people expect to get a certain amount of feedback on their artwork and they put their artwork out there and then it, it gets crickets response, you know, like nobody's responding and sharing this artwork that they think is a masterpiece that they spent like, you know, a year working on this painting and like nobody's commenting on it or liking it or anything like that, which sucks, but that isn't representational of, of the real world. You know, like I, I think what happens is it's like you're throwing, you know, a coin into a lake <laughs> Um, you know, like on the internet, your painting is like this little, this little speck and you're throwing it out there and you're hoping that somebody might see that and like share that with their friends. Whereas like, if you have your own gallery space and somebody comes that, first of all, they've left their home. They're not looking at their device. They're not inundated with a thousand other things. They walk into your gallery space and they are looking right, you know, they're two feet away from your painting. And they're like, this is pretty cool. Can you tell me about it? That opens them up to, holy shit. Like, this is, this is, this is a real thing. You are a real person. This really connects to me. Like. Well, Brian, I just, I lost you for just a second. But if I could interrupt, I, I was wondering how has the, the pandemic how has it affected your your embrace the weird art gallery? And well, how are you planning to move forward with the business while you're essentially navigating a, a deadly contagious uh, virus? Right. And well, you know, that's that is the ever evolving question that I think every human on this planet should be asking if they're not asking it. Um, if they have a business, I know a lot of people are not paying attention to what's going out in the world. They just want things to go back the way that they always were. I'm not hundred percent convinced that uh, we will ever get back to the way it always was. I think this has been a turning point globally for, for all humans to some degree. Um, I think things will get back to a semblance of normal. I think we will be moving forward, but I think changes happened. I think uh, um, that being said, what I was saying earlier about my gallery and the best part about it was being that human connection. That is largely the thing that has been derailed. My ability to make genuine human connection in my gallery has, well, my gallery has been closed for the last, I guess, three months now. Three months? Uh, you know, uh, March 15th was the last day that we were open. So yeah, um, just over three months. And 
uh, you know, I, while I, I've continued to make a few sales online and I've had some people reach out for commissions and stuff, which has been great. Um, those things have definitely helped, you know, keep some of the bills paid. Um, the, the main source of my income, which is people coming in and discovering the artwork and, and the, and the regular collectors who want to physically see the art and be in the art. Cause when you're, when you're buying artwork, that is not just, you know, uh, a magazine page or a photo of something. It's, it's a, it's a physical manifestation of, of an idea. And that concept translates so much more strongly if you can live in the same space as that artwork. So like when you are making a choice to buy a piece of artwork, an investment that's gonna go in your home for you know, your, the rest of your life, I think it's good to meet that artwork face to face instead of just buying something online. Um, and so when people come into the gallery to see the artwork, I love that because then they get to experience what it actually is. And the level of detail that I put into my artwork doesn't translate online anyway. People need to physically be there. So now that we we're all wearing masks and we all have to maintain a six foot distance and we can't touch anything, that, that leaves a whole different selling and buying and uh, commercial retail experience to be had. And I don't think that the ideal version of that has even been created yet. You know, we go to the grocery store, we're masked up and like the checkout centers have like plexiglass in front of them and like you're sliding your money through a little opening. And that's, that's one version of that. Uh, I, we haven't necessarily opened up to where like clothing retailers are back in, in effect. I sell a lot of t-shirts and socks and, and, and hand-painted things and hats in my gallery. What I've learned over the last, you know, two and a half years is that people like, people need to touch stuff before they buy it. If you're going to buy a piece of clothing or a hat or a garment that you're going to spend a good amount of money on that you're going to live with for a really long time, is it a feel that you like Can you, and, and you want to touch it? How, how in this pandemic world where we have no more access to cleaning supplies such as Lysol, the things that were like weird and basic before, how, how do we uh, disinfect clothing now after people touch them? Uh, do we have to now put uh, plexiglass in front of all displays to keep people from touching those things so that we're not uh, spreading viruses to other people via a t-shirt? Like, because the science is, there's not enough science yet. People say it can't be spread by touching. Then people say it can be spread by touching. And I've always felt it's better to err on the side of caution. So until there is actual fact-based proof that, oh no, it cannot be spread by touching, then we have to function as if it can be. And so opening back up as a retail space, that's like, at this point, even when I go grocery shopping, I take everything home and I wash it. If somebody buys my t-shirt, they can take it home and they can wash it and, and, and that's fine. 
but what happens with the customers that want to touch every t-shirt in the rack, right? Like almost every day I'm open for business, there's somebody that comes in there that wants to just rifle through everything and they want to touch everything. And so now do I have to create a plexiglass case to keep t-shirts in to prevent people from rifling through them? Um, do I now have to create plexiglass corridors in my shop that are basically just tunnels? Because it's, as much as I love people, people also have not the best willpower in the world. And even people with good intentions do stuff. They're not like we're, we're trained to function in one way. And now something's hit us as a society, as a culture, as human beings. That is like, okay, you now have to take a right turn. You, we were going straight this way and now we've been derailed entirely. And even people with the best intentions say like somebody is, is empathetic and they understand the importance of wearing a mask. So they're like, I'm gonna wear a mask. Um, so they have their mask on and they go into a store but they did not put the mask on correctly for some reason and it starts to slip and fall off and, that, and next thing you know they're in the middle of a retail store, they're rifling through stuff, and the mask is now a chin strap, and and they don't even they didn't even realize it happened, right? It's like what what kind of situation does that create now? It's like that person could totally be spreading a deadly virus unwittingly, not intentionally, not maliciously, but just because they didn't clearly think through everything or properly put on the protective gear. Right, right. So it's like, I can't be mad at that person. You know, like I, I don't want, it's like, do I throw them out of the store because they, they made a mistake? Like, I, I think that's, that's awful. Like, but it's the situation that is, it's the environment that we're creating. But not only do we have that situation, it's like, you can look on the internet and there's, an endless amount of video now where people are going into retail stores that are requiring people to wear masks and they are literally taking their masks off inside the store and, and coughing on people and spitting on people in protest to the mask situation. So I think opening up in a retail space is also subjecting us to possibly uh, people that have broken like their, their empathy response has broken and, <laughs> and it's like, they are now like maliciously attacking people because they are being told they can't do something. And so they're lashing out. Well, so let me ask you, Brian, where do you see Embrace the Weird, given that the complexities of that and the constraints of that, where do you see your work in, uh, five years or 10 years, where is Embrace the Weird in your, uh, in your vision? Well, I do think that the current, the exact current situation we are in is temporary. We've gotten through pandemics before. Um, I, I personally think it's just a matter of time before uh, incredibly smart scientists whom I know a few are, who are working diligently to to create solutions for this and to create a genuine response and, and treatments for these things. I, it's only a matter of time before those things are discovered. Like it's all time has always been 
the limiting factor for these things because certain processes take certain amounts of time. So once those things are sorted out, I think we'll be able to um, move forward in a much more close way than what we had traditionally been known for or used to. Um, I think in the immediate response, I don't know if we're gonna be able to open up business as usual uh, in, in the next couple of months or so as they start reopening things. Um, we don't have enough uh, personal protective equipment for everyone to have a mask when they come in. We can't give masks away freely for people to come into the shop because they just, they don't exist. We don't have Lysol to spray clothing down with. So I'm not sure how that retail experience is, is developing. I, I am developing online classes to teach, like, cause I taught art classes in, in my gallery space. I'm developing more classes that I can teach remotely on this platform, uh, on a Zoom platform. I will be developing the website even farther to create more products, more custom handmade products on the website and connecting in that way. Um, I don't know that traditional retail is going to be coming back the way that people hope it's coming back until there is a genuine treatment and a thing that can cure or prevent this thing from happening. We talk, there's a lot of talk about herd immunity, but there's not a lot of talk about the fact that with herd immunity, an insanely large amount of the population has to get infected. And with this particular disease, there an insanely large amount of deaths are going to happen. And I don't know that they have to happen if we allow scientists to study this thing a little bit longer so they, they can get a genuine handle and a feel for what it is this is and what it takes to, to, to cure it. I'm sure that that will happen. I think that we're right now in this sort of imbalanced teetering of people who have completely shut down all logic and reason <laughs> and, and people who are desperately trying to hang on to that logic and reason. And we're seeing uh, how long humans can last until uh, Lord of the Flies becomes a reality. <laughs> well, Brian, we have just a few minutes here. I'd love to continue yeah. the conversation. We're kind of reaching the, the end of the hour. But I want to know for those folks who want to uh, embrace the weird yeah. and want to know more about you. I mean, you have a podcast, right? And uh, how can yeah. they get a hold of you and listen to you and uh, share that with me, if you will? So, so uh, I'm on all the social media. So if you just want to connect with me via my artwork, you can connect via at Brian A. Bernhard uh, on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. It's at Brian A. Bernhard, just my name spelled out. Uh, if you want to find my products in my design brand, uh, you can go to embracetheweird.design. Uh, my, mo all my t-shirt, all my clothing manufacturers uh, that I've partnered with are still printing all my designs on things um, throughout the pandemic, magically. Uh, the shipping is a little bit delayed with stuff. <laughs> As, as shipping is delayed with everything, but it, things will get out to where they're going. Um, and I also, uh, in the pandemic, I launched my own podcast, which is called Artsy Fartsy Things and Stuff. And that can be found on uh, YouTube, on Facebook, on uh, all the major podcast networks. 
And the website for that is artsyfartsy.show. Artsyfartsy.show. Yeah. That's Very where cool. my podcast is. And it's, I, I, I interview ex, uh, amazing creative people about amazing, who make amazing creative things. And I just wanted to create some kind of inspiration in this weird time that we're at. Sounds good. Hey, Brian, thanks for being my guest today. I really enjoyed it. I know we're going to talk again before too long. And um, my name is Robert Barham. This is American Dream Time. That's all we have time for today. And um, embrace the weird. We'll talk again soon. Stay weird, everybody. Thanks.